Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 342. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week on the show, The Bad Samaritan, people who should mind their own gosh darn business. You ever try and help an old lady across the street, on the hood of your car? Don't expect any thank yous. Let's dive right in with a 100-word story. This week's 100-word drabble is called DIY Space Repair by former member Monsieur Mustache. Here goes. The alien pointed. Purple wire to the red cubazoid, green tube into the Jelazar puff, then reattach red wires to that squirmy Crewelin creature. Watch out, it spits. Gart 5BK's spaceship was nearly repaired, no thanks to his injured arms, but to his enslaving device and the hapless Earth native he'd shanghaied. It should be grateful he'd expanded its mind to understand Alnatakian engineering. Already late, he wasted no time blasting off. The Beagle, meanwhile, marveled over her newfound knowledge. Quelitzers, Crewelins, wires, and tubes raced around her brain. Only one thing troubled her. What exactly did purple, red, and green mean? And that leads us to our feature story this week. I'm Bill Curtis, by Victor Schultz. Victor's works appeared in Third Coast, Confrontation, and other places, and we're happy to have him here on the Drabblecast. This story is a Drabblecast original. So without further ado, we bring you I'm Bill Curtis, by Victor Schultz. Nate had expected the first serial killer. In fact, the first thing he'd said to Kelly once their smoking Ford rolled to a stop on the shoulder was, This is serial killer country. We're finished. She made scaredy-cat eyes and drew a finger across her throat. Finished, he enunciated. She'd heard his bake before, something to the effect that certain places, the Wisconsin North Woods, for example, or parts of Appalachia, or in this case, Tornado Alley, were stuffed silly with the dumped, spent corpses of serial killers' labor. The type needed space to operate. So each tree in the North Woods doubled as a headstone, each stalk of corn out here a memorial, and to hike cross-country through such territory was to traipse condemned through the densest kind of cemetery. Do you want me to have a look? Kelly said. There'd been a gassy whine from under the hood just a minute before the engine cut. Just stay here, Nate said, and lock the doors if anyone pulls over. No headlight shone in either direction of the interstate as he got out of the car. A couple minutes later, after scalding his finger on the shadowy motor metal and wondering how to shoot off a flare, he re-entered. She's dead. Call a tow truck. And so his vigil for their murderer began. Kelly hung up her cell and told him that a tow truck would be here in half an hour or so. Or so. 
Or so. Tons could happen during that or so. Nate might have imagined that in thirty minutes they would be fine, sitting talking about getting their dogs out of the kennel when they got back to Chicago, and at thirty-three, at or so, when their kindly tow truck driver got there, they would be going cold and covered in each other's blood, locked in a final embrace. They'd be easy apples for a son of Sam. Instead, Nate's scenarios focused on the appearance of the killer. One time, the killer affixed red and blue lights to his dashboard and approached Nate's driver's side in the guise of a cop. Another, he wore a jumpsuit and presented himself as a well-meaning mechanic just passing by. He kept a gun in his toolbox. Near as Nate could tell, they were at the mercy of anyone with a weapon and a will. Kelly must have seen how much he was perspiring. Maybe you should stop with the true crime stuff. Maybe you should keep an eye on our flank. Nate kept the lights on for comfort, and so any passing motorists wouldn't think what he usually thought when he saw a dark car apparently abandoned roadside late at night. That someone was dumping a body. The downside, of course, was the lights were a beacon for passerby pleased to slay the innocent for sport. Orso finally arrived. No one had driven past, so when the tow truck's headlights faded in and tracked to Nate's rear view, he had every confidence that the driver would double as their executioner. The truck eased into position before them. Nate gave Kelly's hand a quick squeeze, stepped out of the car to face their fate. Evening, sir, the driver said. He wore his cap low, but the smile seemed sincere. Not your night, huh? I thought this piece of shit had one last run in her. Nate hoped the cuss would somehow make him seem more human. There's a decent mechanic just up in Linville. Two exits on. Fair rates. There any place to stay the night? Lodge up there's always got rooms. Want me to holler in? The man was already appraising the car, crouching down to check the axle. Kelly chose that moment to join them. You need me to put it in neutral or anything? She asked the driver. No, ma'am, I need to link up first. Nate watched for any sign of the man's taking a special interest in Kelly, but the driver's gaze hadn't lingered at all when he answered her. This could have meant that he didn't like strawberry blondes or felt it was too risky out here in the open, or wasn't even a murderer at all. Nate took it to mean the driver had stalked them for some time and probably knew his prey. He tried to remain loose and alert at once, failing at both. Kelly smiled at him. Soon the wheel lift on the back of the tow truck was hauling up their sedan's front fender. The driver called them over to the open door of his cab. Just need you to sign here, sir. Then you guys can climb in and we'll be on our way straight off. He turned and handed Nate a clipboard. Nate gave the document only a cursory glance, definitely no more than a second or two, but long enough that he never saw the tire iron hammering into his skull. Short, white, quick, pain, then black. The only thing surprising to Nate about waking up alone in his own trunk was that he'd woken up at all. Impressive pain in his head, and his hair was a blood mess that tarred the fuzzy sides of the trunk, but it struck him that the driver's failure to finish him signaled inexperience. 
or maybe just a lucky amateur whom Kelly could outfox or overpower. Kelly. Thinking of her made it hard to breathe. He spent himself kneeing and punching and shoving the trunk door, but nothing, and he could tell from the angle he was at that the car was still hooked up to the tow truck. Silence outside. The tow truck was stopped, or had never started. He didn't know how long he'd been out. Nate felt like they didn't deserve to be just numbers. Kelly, for sure, was more than just a number, more than a mid-season episode on some true crime series on TV. He could imagine Bill Curtis's face during the coda. For American justice, I'm Bill Curtis, said the face. Then roll credits on tow truck murderers nationwide and preview the following week's episode about a beauty queen slain in Oklahoma. Kelly's eyes seeped into Nate's brain, unbidden, like a hacked feed, not her actual eyes, but what they were seeing. He tried to blink her out, but couldn't. Her eyes made out stars and cornstalks, and the tow truck driver's face just above her. The face was close and had bushy eyebrows. It dripped sweat on her. It was the last thing she'd ever see, as the driver sawed into her carotid. This scenario looped with minor variations. She was in the trunk cab, or a nearby abandoned farmhouse, or barn instead of a field, or garroting, bludgeoning, shooting instead of throat slitting. He was suffocating in death scenes, consumed by that alien hovering face, drowning in its sweat, crushed under accumulating carcasses. The slayings were relentless and feverish, but somewhere, improbably, was a hint of light, a feeling that if just one of her selves could survive till dawn, she could somehow save them all. Nate was still stuck in the loop, Kelly killed over and over, when suddenly he felt the car begin to ease back to level ground, heard the trunk pop open. At first he thought it daytime because of the glare, but it was only another truck parked right behind him, engine idling. A huge semi-truck whose headlights blinded him and made an inky boogeyman of the figure standing just over him. And then Nate noticed the boogeyman had strawberry blonde hair. Can you walk? Kelly asked him. Where is he? The semi-truck's headlights showed a rent in Kelly's cheek, but the sprays of blood on her shirt didn't look like hers. The cab of the tow truck, she said. Dead. Nate flinched as if the pain were his. How? She shook her head into his shoulder. I did it. You folks need help? A man was climbing down from the driver's side of the semi-truck, but Kelly and Nate's hug was so fierce he barely turned his head to look at the man. Everything okay here? We've been attacked, sir. I think we need the police. Was it just one guy? What's his status? The burly trucker looked ready to mount a charge should the tow truck's cab door open. Just one. He's dead. My name's Trevor. I can radio a cruiser from my cab. You injured, ma'am? We should get an ambulance, too. I think Nate might need it more than me. Her fingers went to Nate's head as Trevor stepped warily to the tow truck window. He backed from the window, wide-eyed. You're tougher than you look, Nate. Not even close. Let's get a blanket on you, too, and make that call. 
Trevor motioned for them to come with him. Kelly refused the arm he proffered, but as she turned to walk, the blood on her shirt came clearly into his view for the first time. Trevor stopped for a moment. The expression on his face was conflicted, a sort of queasiness, Nate guessed, but the trucker managed not to look too ill. He composed himself and guided them to his rig. They stood by the road while he rummaged around inside the cab. From what Nate could see, they were still near where his car had originally broken down. Ain't the first time I've seen this, you know. Trevor leaned from the open doorway to hand a plaid wool blanket down to Nate, who wrapped it around Kelly. Ah, the details are different, but you roll these roads long enough, you're bound to see some things that'll keep you up at night. He got on the CB radio. Nate heard some static, and Trevor drawled that they had a 1033 at the nearest mile marker. Shortly after, Trevor climbed out of the cab to stand with them, waiting. Yeah, you two might be luckier than you think, he said. Usually something like this happens. They don't find a trace of anyone. He scanned the road both ways. No police lights yet. No lights at all. You done good, miss. He patted Kelly gently on the shoulder. Then tomahawked her head into the side of his truck. Nate could give credit to their first attacker, who had simply been too quick at a critical moment. But as Trevor's weight flattened Nate on the roadside, as his hands began wringing the oxygen from Nate's windpipe, some small part of Nate blamed himself for this one. It had been slow in developing, a crude scheme, and now he felt Trevor even looked the part of a veteran serial killer, maw and rage, and not a lot else. That they'd just been assaulted by a predator seemed a poor excuse to Nate for failing to see the second one. He hoped it would go fast for Kelly. As the night faded around him, he tried to imagine some way she might beat death once again. He failed to see this, too. Nate coughed himself awake and knew immediately that this time he wasn't in his own trunk. It was level with the ground, for one thing, squared off and much smaller. He couldn't even move his arms to pound futilely against the metal interior. He offered one meek and agonizing headbutt before Trevor's eyes popped into his mind as though from a feed again. The nausea that hit him at that moment could have either been from the concussion or the sickening image he saw of Kelly before him. She wore glasses, was gagged tightly, her head resting on a soiled leather seat. The glasses were impossible. She'd had LASIK the year before and hadn't even brought them on the trip. Her shoulders were bare, her neck purple. In this iteration, he saw through Trevor's eyes as he wrapped her body in plastic and heaved her from the bridge, remembering to poke holes in the wrap so she would sit longer on the riverbed. Then the cycle began again and again as he saw Trevor hide her remains in a decrepit silo. Trevor disposed of her body in a strip mall dumpster. He left her in an old quarry. He dropped her down a mine shaft, down a well, down a roster of graves Nate had seen on TV or read about, places man-made that now seemed as if they'd always been more fit for the secreting of bodies than for industry. Strange thing, every time Trevor dumped her, no matter how deeply he buried her, no matter how much he bundled her up, he always found something missing afterward. 
Once, with soggy socks and frantic searching, it was his boots. Another time, it was his entire truck, the empty highway stretching in both directions as he returned. Finally, Trevor lost his eyes themselves, and Nate saw through the man's eyes as each one blinked out in burgundy, first the left, then the right. The clink of metal next to Nate's ear didn't snap him out from his trance, and neither did Kelly's opening the door of the semi-truck's underbody trunk and lifting him out. He awoke to see her standing before him with a monstrously bruised face corn to the horizon pre-dawn on her shoulder. Immediately, the two were hugs and sobs, all reflex, and Nate lost track of whatever question he'd been trying to splutter out. Huddled in the shadow of the truck's trailer, she apologized for getting blood on him. It's from his head, she said, as she bowed her own. After a silence, Nate stared toward the tow truck. My phone. I'll get the police. I already radioed for help. Kelly was hoarse. Don't go back in there. He took her up again in a hug of the should-be-dead and maneuvered her in a loving shuffle to the semi-truck's passenger side. He draped his gray sweater over her. Its color matched the steel of the trailer. It will keep you warm, he said. Murmuring something about rest, he persuaded her to sit with her legs bunched against her chest to reduce exposure. Stop babying, she said, reeking of blood. Her shelled stare wobbled him. The first responder to Kelly's broadcast was no state trooper, but a bespectacled Good Samaritan. He approached, rounded the corner of the trailer, and initially gaped at the couple, but after a second went back to his car for a first aid kit, saying something about help from harm. He started towards them with arms wide and lulling tones that blended with the thrum of his still-idling engine. Nate and Kelly looked quickly at each other, and this time, they didn't miss their chance. They made a break for the cornfield. They ran free and hard, and morning dew fired from their souls until, as they approached the first rows of corn, Nate managed to glance over his shoulder. As Kelly blazed past him into the corn, he slowed to a stop, staring. In the distance, the Good Samaritan had begun to lope after them, and as Nate looked in awe past the man to the man's vehicle, a white van parked alongside the road, he saw another white van parked behind that one as well, and another one parked behind that, and another one parked behind that one as well. And beyond that, a countless number of white vans parked, each with the lone figure of a driver shadowed in the windshield, waiting his turn. A cavalcade of killers that Nate knew must stretch all the way to the ocean. And seen through the eyes of space, Nate knew they must look like the Great Wall of China, like a trace smile lining the Earth's cheek. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Wouldn't it suck if you always dreamed of being a serial killer, but then you got caught after the first person you hacked to pieces and ate? I could have been a contender. 
If you want another dose of creepy, ambiguous, and off-kilter psychopathic stories, and if you like the Drabblecast, and if you aren't subscribed to Drabblecast B-Sides, our bonus premium content podcast, think about supporting the Drabblecast at the $10 a month level. Once you sign up, you'll get an email with info on how to access the feed, and each month you'll get extra stories and fun content from the old DC. This week, we just produced a fun story called Sorry About Your Dog, and you won't want to miss it. Just hit up our website at Drabblecast.org. Click the Donate to the Drabblecast $10 a month option there to your right. We rely fully on the support of listeners such as yourself to keep this show top-notch and consistent. And we really appreciate your generosity. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week by first-time winner Nocturnus with this one here. Don't think of the worms crawling under your skin. No, really, don't. If you think about them, they get hungry and breed. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters, not counting spaces? Give it a shot. Post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might be next week's winner. Follow the Drabblecast for the winners early each week at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, E.C. Ives. The Travelcast is brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, rattlesnakes are a lot more dangerous when they're hungry.